You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You are listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas Caldwell, Alexandra, Helen Nicholas, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Any more thoughts on... We're all crying. Christopher Lee, what an so extraordinary sad. man. We only have an hour, Thomas. I can't. <laughs> I have not enough tears. I thought we had to get it over and done with at the start of the show because uh, we, we could do a whole show on Christopher Lee, in fact. I think he got the Guinness Book of Record entry for who, for starring in the most films of any actor ever. And extraordinary personal life, too. These incredible articles have been popping up all over the internet about some of the stuff he did in his personal life, the people he was related to, the people he knew. He hung out with Tolkien. Um, you know, he was a Tolkien fan. He hunted Nazis. This guy tracked down Nazis as well as playing, you know, Dracula and what's his name in Lord of the Rings that he's really famous for. Saruman. Saruman. Apparently Tolkien wanted him to play Gandalf, but um, he settled for Saruman when he got to the role a bit later in his life. And he owns it. And he owns it. And of course, Dracula. But that Wicker Man, that role in the Wicker Man is where I think we can say he really excels. Lord He'll always be Lord Samurail. And that awesome, awesome cameo in Gremlins 2, the new batch which is one of the most wonderful cameos in a cameo-rich film. One of my favourite quotes which came out this week from Christopher Lee was something along the lines of every actor has to make bad films in their career. The trick is not to be bad in them. And I think that really sums up his approach to performance, really. He's one of the faces of 20th century horror especially, but I mean, I think in cinema across the board. Weirdly, a couple of nights before he passed away, I re-watched um, Curse of the Crimson Altar. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it's Boris Karloff, Barbara Steele and Christopher Lee. Now um, Barbara's the only one left. That was just heartbreaking. It's like, okay, we all really need to get Barbara Steele in more films, because you know, we've just lost Christopher Lee. We she well, can't live around. She can't live forever. <laughs> well, look, and, and, and you know these people can't. And um, Christopher Lee did so much in his life. Like he's someone to really be inspired to. Do do hunt around online for some of the articles about the stuff. Philip Hawker, in fact, for Fairfax, you know, a Melbourne-based journalist, wrote a really good piece summarising some of the great things he had done. It's 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 really good reading. And and you go and revisit some of those those wonderful wonderful films. It's been a rough week actually for um entertainer deaths, but uh, Christopher Lee is the one that really hit us all. Uh, so we salute you, Christopher Lee, and um, I'm sorry that it was your uh, time for your appointment with the Wicker Man, but um, you know he, he will live on. <laughs> he really will. On Plato's Cave tonight, we are going to look at uh, three films that are all playing in cinemas at the moment. We're going to start with the Australian-Irish co-production Strangerland, a thriller set in a remote Australian desert town involving dust storms, missing children, rampant suspicions, and a whole lot of barely repressed tension. And then 22 years after the original Jurassic Park set the bar for what could be achieved with CGI effects, we've got the fourth instalment in the series with Jurassic World, where yet again a theme park featuring cloned dinosaurs turns out to have a few occupational health and safety (laughs) issues. When will they learn? Uh, and finally, we're going to look at the re-release of 54, a highly compromised 1998 film about the dying days of disco that was a flop on release and has since been significantly restored back to what the director originally intended. Does it make a difference? We'll discuss that right at the end of the show. But first, let's sink our teeth, as Christopher Lee would do, to Strangerland. Strangerland is an Australian film set in a fictional outback town where the Parker family have moved after a scandal involving their teenage daughter Lily, played by Madison Brown. 
Now, the tension this has brought to the family is visible in the relationship between mum, Catherine, played by Nicole Kidman, and dad, Matthew, played by Joseph Fiennes. And both Lily herself and her younger brother, Tommy, uh, Nicholas Hamilton, are distant and isolated from their parents as much as the parents are from each other. The kids go missing one night, and with the help of the local cop, David, played by Hugo Weaving, the search for the missing children reveals as much about Catherine and Matthew themselves as it does their lost kids. So Strangerland is the debut feature film for Kim Farrant. Um, She earned her stripes in the trenches of television, um, but this is no TV movie by any stretch. Um, Even this film's detractors, and there are many, have been forced to acknowledge that it's a a beautifully shot film. There's a lot of things going on with the colour palette and light in this movie that's quite quite beautiful. But this is very much Kidman's film. This is very much a capital uh, N, capital K, Nicole Kidman movie. Um, I believe that this is her first Australian indie feature since she did Dead Calm in 1989 uh, with George Miller. Um, Phil, I, Phil Noyce? Philip Noyce. Sorry, Philip Noyce. Yeah. Why did I say George Miller? You're right. Thank you for... You Mad Max Fury I'm just telling you. Every, every, every film is by George Miller. <laughs> um, I... I have a strange relationship with Nicole Kidman in that when I think of the words Nicole Kidman, I think of like tabloid Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and Keith Urban and and I know I don't don't like that Nicole Kidman. And then I remember that there's this like alternative canon Nicole Kidman. So, you know, if I can kind of let go of the big stuff, you know, the hours and the Baz Luhrmann stuff, things like that, I remember that there's these smaller, quirkier, infinitely more hyperactive and overwrought films, things like To Die For and The Others and Birth and Fur, these great films that were quite small. Strangerland for me is that Nicole. It's it's this sort of second, this alternative canon Kidman stuff. Um, I I think she's great in it. I think that she does overwrought really well. That's her her superpower and it's an interesting thing to, to do well and to be admired for. She's always capital A acting, our Nicole. Um, I'm, I'm of a minority in that I, I really enjoyed this film. I think I, um, I certainly don't disagree with a lot of the criticisms that people have made, but despite that, I, I actually was quite taken with this film. I, was, I thought it was really interesting. I really struggled to get into this, and I wanted to, because it seems like my kind of thing, but I had a similar reaction to it to what I had with Go uh, go West. <laughs> as, I, as I did to... Um, I've got disco on the mind, you see. As I did to um, Slow West last week, which is I recognise what it's trying to do, and I kind of admire all the notes it's hitting, but the, the film as a whole didn't really work for me. Um, and I, I, I found it was just... I was spotting all the references and thinking, ah, right, okay, they're doing this to evoke Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh, this is the Blue Velvet moment. There's a sequence with Nicole Kidman in this which is directly lifted from a moment with Isabella Rossellini in in, in, in Blue Velvet. Uh, a lot of it felt very Lars von Trier meets Mystery Road. That will be my really flippant way of describing it. So I, I really struggled. Um, and I found the whole tone of the film unrelentingly bleak and depressing, which is not something I normally have issue with. And I think it's because other films that do this, there are moments of maybe humour and, and light. This is just non-stop miserabilism. Um, and not in a way that I found satisfying like something like Snowtown either. Um, 
you know, I think it was interesting that they kind of presented this this tiny community of racial harmony, but they sort of where you know Aboriginal Australians and, and white Australians seem to actually mix quite uh, without without any any issue, which was sort of refreshing to see. But it was this hellish town, and I don't know whether they quite meant to undermine that kind of harmony with presenting this town as so so hellish, or maybe it was only hellish from the point of view of the people living there. This, this, this family who the tragedy hits. I had huge problems with the fact that um, Joseph Fiennes was doing appalling acting in this. This is some really, some of the worst acting I've seen in the mainstream film from an actor of his calibre in a long time. It was quite shocking. It felt really amateurish. And then there's the whole Lolita stuff. The, all this very... i still trying to get my head around what on earth the film was trying to say. It was evoking all this idea of panic about female sexuality, but it was treating the, the kind of crazy sexuality of Nicole Kidman's character on the same level as her daughter and implying that her daughter is 15-year-old who has way too much awareness of, of sex, that that's somehow something hereditary. I mean, it raises the issue that kids this age often have this hypersexual uh, behaviour when they've been victims of, of abuse. But... The, but at the same time, the film doesn't seem to really... It hints that that might be the case. It then says maybe it's not and maybe she just is her mother's daughter. I couldn't figure out whether this was trying to say the problem was repressing this desire or that the desire was was the problem. And, and presenting this 15-year-old girl in the first 20 minutes of the film, the camera spent a lot of time lingering over her very naked young body, including a scene where we watched her getting changed. I thought, why are we watching this? Is the film trying to make us partly culpable? I, I, I don't know. I... I don't want to be prudish and be uncomfortable with things things like this. It's more that I was just questioning the motives of this kind of titillation. Yeah, the like mother, like daughter stuff in there is, is definitely discomforting. Uh, it, it is a, a really odd film. I, I share some of your sentiments, Thomas. In fact, quite a few of them. Uh, yeah, the, the, this definitely has a punishing take on, on female sexuality, uh, especially any that dares express itself... Um, in any sort of vivacious uh, sort of way. Uh, uh, one thing that really struck me that I thought was entirely admirable and believable was th- this girl was kept a diary, and this diary st- really rang true to me. It's full of collaged uh, impressions of her life and her sexual relationships, which, as a, a rather appalled mother discovers and keeps from uh, her husband, uh, are full of um, accounts, a documentation of uh, dalliances had with quite a few people. And it, it you know, the film withholds a little bit of information from us at the beginning. We don't know quite why they left this other town and came 300 kilometres even further into the middle of nowhere. But we, we discover that it's to do with a, a relationship she had with a teacher when she was younger. She's already still... Well, she's still a minor even when we join her in the present in this film. Uh, it's... It, its take on sexuality is, is curious on the male side as well because Joseph Fine's character is just a very odd, cold character and there's clear indication that he's sexually dysfunctional yet he's a pharmacist who, pharmacist who, who knows best. Uh, but he, he's a, a really problematic character also and um, his work ethic is, is troubling in this film in that he seems to privilege that over looking after his children, whom we know early on in the film to have witnessed uh, escaping. And so it's trying to pin down quite where he's coming from 
is is very difficult. I mean, that's part of the, the mystery of the film, but in a way it almost has too many mysteries towards its close. Uh, I, I understand it might be trying to generally create a, an overwhelming atmosphere of, of mystery and doom, and but that doesn't quite jibe with the the, the air, as, as you say, Tom, it's a sort of a utopian uh, town in the middle of nowhere where the indigenous folks and the... Uh, more stereotypical strine types uh, seem to live quite harmoniously so it's an odd film um, and it, 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 when it finally got uh, to its close and it doesn't seem quite long uh, not quite satisfying but it still actually held me for quite a bit of its its runtime and I, I too Alex admired a lot of its cinematography especially the aerial cinematography over these beautiful enveloping landscapes where you really think surely if anyone goes missing there there's it's a needle in a haystack search, surely. It was interesting watching it on the back of Marshland the week before, another land film, which also had a lot of aerial shots in it as well. It's a bit about children going missing or young, and sexually active teenage girls going missing. Yeah, there definitely was. Uh, that, that was an interesting parallel, and, 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 and the motives of the daughter are sort of kept very mysterious I think the film tried to play the mysterious card way too hard It was I, I, you often see this with new filmmakers they're, they're really afraid of doing too much exposition because you know people like us sit around and criticise the film for over explaining so they overcompensate too far in the other way they, they strip out too much information so you're, you're left floundering a little bit trying to figure out what's going on and you know read the, read the minds of the characters and I think often people developing these films get so intent they know exactly what's going on with the characters but they forget to communicate everything I mean I, you know the, <laughs> damned if they do damned if they don't because there'll always be a room full of people like us judging them <laughs> and you know it's remarkable they've made this film full stop I mean it is a remarkable looking film it, you know and bravo for getting the film together I just really struggled with it um, and another thing I was going to say that I had a problem with was a weird sense of time and space like characters would be in the, in the town doing stuff and then some we would see them fairly remotely in the desert taking part of some search and they're back in the town again. I, I started to think, how are they teleporting between locations? This is so interesting to me because I, I actually don't disagree with anything that you guys have said, even though I'm on the other side of the fence and I actually really like this film and as I, I know I am aware that I'm a minority on this. But I've noticed in the few other reviews that I've seen of people who, who share my opinion of it, we're not necessarily disagreeing with the points that you guys have raised. Um, I... There's a dust storm quite early in this film that's it's beautifully filmed. It's quite a remarkable, strange sequence. And for me, it's almost a reverse Wizard of Oz in that everything that happens after this dust storm is this dark, stranger land. Like it's this, it, I mean, I, I read it like that and that it doesn't make sense. The spatial-temporal relations collapse as the relations in the family collapse. I loved its ambivalence. It, it really worked for me. Yeah. I love the idea that it acknowledges... Um, at one point, without without giving a spoiler, but it acknowledges a very clear reason why Lily would behave, be behaving in the way that she is, and it ref, it really doesn't unpack it. It really kind of flags it, but doesn't really go anywhere with it. I liked that it's ambivalent. Um, it doesn't fetishise the children. I actually really like that it is, and this is a complaint that a lot of people have said, is that it sort of focuses on the, on the parents' relationship, and it's almost like they forget that the kids are missing. I really liked that. I'm sort of, you know, the... the 
yeah, and like I said, the, the things that you guys didn't like about it, I think, were the things that actually endeared it to me. I think I'm just contrary. I think you're reading it's very good. I think, and I think it's the only way to get your head around this mm. film. This idea, the, I like the, the, yeah, the reverse Wizard of Oz thing. That I mean, that dust storm is very deliberately there at the start of the film, and then we kind of get some strange inverse land, and it is called Stranger Land. So I think that the clues are there. I just found this film a little impenetrable, despite admiring it a lot. It's overcooked. I, yeah. I would say, absolutely. And there might be one love, tri- one live love triangle too many as well. It's just yes. the, the the relationship. I would agree with yeah, that. It's just all just a little too complex uh, and or too simple simultaneously as in just to say that something is just a bit undercooked. And I did get the giggles during one of the sex scenes in the film. It got a little bit showgirls for me. There was, a, there, was a, there, was a, there was a very overwrought grief sex scene, which yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. it walked a dangerous line, and I, I almost felt—I feel like a philistine actually—but I did sort of go, oh, "Wow, they're really—they're really working the grief sex here." Yeah, you know, like, sorry, Alex. I'm being flippant. <laughs> so that's not very nice. It's a film you like, and I'm being very flippant. No, not at all. <laughs> like I said, I don't necessarily. I, there was some of the, the teenage poetry. The teenage girls' poetry was was my version of your sex scene, uh, sure. not your sex. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, wasn't, like, wasn't no, that wasn't you. I, didn't. I, I don't um, have cameras rolling when I do grief yeah. sex. I would agree that it absolutely feels like a. a <laughs> I should say I haven't seen this film, but on the back of what you just said, I really do want to see it now. It does, the, the poetry would have been fine if it weren't occasionally in voice over just at peculiar wistful moments within the film uh, but th- that diary again returning to that I thought was actually strong visually and, oh, it, and it really rang very true to me just the sentiments expressed in it very simply and you sense very uh, powerfully and really to the, the girl. I love that the diary, the aesthetics of the diary, that collage effect really matched the aesthetics of her bedroom as well. Beautiful yeah. set design and I thought, not just cinematography but visually I thought that was really great things. It's a first film um, and, and I think there's some rookie mistakes but I'm quite happy to give the director room to make those rookie mistakes because I think there's a real spark here. Three triple R. Jurassic World. This is from co-writer and director Colin Trevorrow, taking the reins from, well, Joe Johnston directed the third Jurassic Park after Spielberg helmed the first two. So, as Thomas, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we return to the island, or Isla Nublar. This is the same island from the original Jurassic Park. It takes place 22 years after the events of the first film. The original Jurassic Park is now in ruins, and in the shadows, a new, more expansive, more extravagant dinosaur theme park has emerged, named Jurassic World. Uh, to keep patrons bursting through those turnstiles, the corporation InGen, who we were introduced to in the first film, have created a new genetically modified hybrid dinosaur dubbed the Indominus Rex which inevitably (laughs) breaks loose from its enclosure and threatens the 20,000 or so people who remain on the island, two of which are the brothers Gray and Zach, nephews of the park's operation manager Claire, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who reluctantly enlists the help of raptor trainer Owen, played by Chris Pratt, to help contain the quote-unquote asset on the loose. Look, I'll be honest, I had fun with this overall, and I think there are some strengths here worth discussing before we launch into the inevitable criticisms of the film. The first, I think the first act is probably the strongest, and for me it was because, unlike so many other films that set their action within the context of a theme park or an entertainment park, this feels like a real theme park. This feels like a world that is utterly believable and 
utterly enticing too. The sense of the crowds, the corporate kitschness, the, the way in which it, it stratifies the different areas of the park across demographics, including one we have the, the children's dinosaur rides from, of the short, stocky dinosaurs. This captures the sense, or for me at least, of what it's like to go to a theme park, as opposed to what it often seems like on film, which is a bunch of extras walking around trying to look like they're having a good time. This felt like a believable setting, and I think it's a it's a strength of the film from a design perspective as well. There's some really clever stuff they do with audiences in stands and how they interact with the um, with the various assets and the and the entertainment as elements. Look, so that's a I guess that's more window dressing. Same thing with the, the visual effects. I think this is a really strong film visually. I think it takes a, its cue from Spielberg's original in terms of the way in which it has you could call it groundbreaking CGI, but uses it. Uh, in conjunction with animatronics. There's a couple of key scenes where we have actors interacting with the dinosaurs in close-up. And at those moments, I think Trevorrow is smart enough to use animatronics to give a sense of the tangibility of the, of the dinosaurs. But there are some problems with this film, particularly in terms of the script. And the longer the film goes on, the less believable uh, it becomes and, and the less coherent it becomes, particularly in regards a subplot involving the military or the military corporation headed by the character played by Vincent D'Onofrio, which makes utterly no sense by the time you get to the end of the film because he acts in a way which, which doesn't actually kind of cohere. And the script has been through a number of hands. In fact, when Trevorrow signed on, he had to sign on without having seen the script and approached Spielberg and said, this script makes no sense. And the script actually went through quite a series of, of arbitrations to try and remove the original authors from their kind of screen credit. So it has a turbulent, tumultuous history in terms of the writing. But look, I think most frustrating for me in terms of this film, despite my enjoyment, is the film's gender politics, which are decidedly cretaceous or cretinous, depending on your point of view, in terms of their politics. I mean, this is an unashamedly boys' own adventure tale. We have the two brothers here, unlike the boy and the, the sister and brother from the first one. It's all about Owen, the Chris Pratt character, who's a strange amalgamation, you could say, of Indiana Jones mixed with Alan Quatermain, Natty Bumpo. He's this curious kind of wilderness figure who falls in all these various characteristics, but he's decidedly hyper-masculine, in case you didn't get it, because he wore shorts to the first date with Claire, the operation manager. He even says in one scene, I am the alpha male. Yes, he does. It <laughs> doesn't get any more literal. I know. And, and look, if it had just been a boy's own adventure tale, and just been men doing manly things in a dinosaur context, I think I would have gone, OK, this is what the film is doing. I can buy it at that. That's the framework it's working in. But unfortunately, the, the Claire character is so poorly written, the Dallas Bryce Howard character, and the film constantly makes the audience aware of the differences between men and women and how they respond to, to tragic life-threatening circumstances in ways that repeatedly demean her and humiliate her and make her kind of like the Kate Capshaw character in uh, Temple of Doom. She's this hapless, squealish, prissy, corporate-type figure that doesn't belong in this this man's world. And perhaps more concerning for me in in this film is... There's a key moment where probably the most violent death in this film is reserved for a female character who is not the quote-unquote blood-sucking lawyer of the first film, if you can remember the guy in the toilet seat who gets torn in half. She's a character who, for all intents and purposes, is an innocent, and I really just... I can't grapple with why this character, of all the characters in the film... It has to suffer the indignity of this horrific kind of undeserving fate. I have an answer. I think that... Because she's that, a woman? Yeah, well, I think it's more than that because I think that... Um, I don't, 
You sound so excited, Josh, when you talk about the synopsis of this film. And I don't, I don't want to be a killjoy. I don't want to. You, were you one of those kids, one of those little kids into dinosaurs? Because I don't want to kill your dino dreams. Hey, you won't. I'm You're still, a nice I'm still guy. One of those kids. I, well, oh, see, I don't want to. I don't want to be that. That However. one. However, <laughs> I think that the film structurally demonizes career women. Yeah. Um, yeah, it yeah takes, that, that's it, the thing, isn't it? It, it yeah. takes away the ability to be maternal from women who want careers and gives the maternal uh, abilities to a mouth breathing dude bro to to Albie did you mention Albie Mangles but, no, but we were it's pretty much like crocodile su- huntery kind Alan, of guy Alan so he he is the maternal yeah. figure in the film and these women are quite literally punished um, for want for not for not being interested in, in kids for just not being interested in kids a lot's been said about the high heels I actually have to admit the heels were one of the few things that didn't bug me I, I when I saw the heels I was thinking of the um that old cliche about Ginger Rogers backwards being able to do everything and, yeah, that Fred Astaire did but thing. backwards and in heels but I did have problems with um Bryce Dallas Howard being oiled for 75% of the film I thought that was a strange directorial choice to oil your female uh lead yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I maybe this film just wasn't for me, but aside from budget and the quality of the effects, it I really didn't feel any difference between this and something like Sharknado. I don't think this film's any smarter. I don't think Tara Reid would have done a worse job. Can I even go that far? Like, it just... I'm not the demographic, though. Like, I, I say that I wasn't a dino kid. I, I found this film perfectly watchable, but it, it left me almost immediately, and I don't think it really took it to a new level that I could invest in. Again, I appreciate the idea of this evil corporate... Well, this... Not evil, but this kind of ruthless corporation, a bit like the corporation from the Alien films, I suppose, who want to preserve the asset, even though the asset's destroying humans, and the kind of intertextuality of saying, well, we're only going to get people into the park if you make it bigger and better and start cloning new creatures we've never seen before, which is what the film marketing, of course, is doing. But it, but it did lose me when things like these two kids were able to fix a, a 92 Jeep and get it running again, and, and just, just weird details like that. But yeah, you've identified my big problem with it, which is one of my most hated uh, tropes. It is that the career woman cannot also be maternal and look after a family. And we see this in, um, in rom-coms a lot. There was a whole spate a few years ago. I think it hit the peak with Bride Wars, this really nasty idea that if a woman wants to have a career, she has she will be a harpy, a shrill. She'll if she's got a husband, she will lose him. She she can't get a boyfriend. She can't uh, look after children. She becomes a bit of a psychopath. Oh, there's also that awful Sandra Bullock film all about Steve, which also followed this trope, and that was all put on this 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 poor Claire character who I sort of kind of liked despite all this, and it also she reminded me of Sigourney Weaver in Galaxy. Quest. Now, Galaxy Quest mm. is a parody, and the gag in that is Sigourney Weaver increasingly loses bits of clothes as the film goes, and it's played for laughs in Galaxy Quest, and it's very knowing, and it's very funny, and Sigourney Weaver really holds her own beautifully with this character. In this film, it happens to her as, yeah, it's just a bit, it's just titillation. It's sort of, you know, she gets more primal, so we see more cleavage, and it, um, it, it was disappointing. I mean... I don't feel like it's not breaking any new grounds in its representation, but it, it's just doing the same old that we really should have moved on from by now. And I think it's a shame that a lot of young boys who are into dinosaurs will see this film and, you know, some of that message might run off. I think it's sad. It's worth saying, too, I mean, we've just flagged gender, but the two villains, the two people in the company who mastermind this are both non white men as well. And I, I don't. So there's the. Um, the uh, well, two out BD of the three. Wong, 
So, yeah, uh, well, so Vincent D'Onofrio, who put in a great role as uh, Joe Hockey in this film, <laughs> once I realised... Oh, my goodness. Cannot once seen, you cannot unsee yeah. it. Once you realise that he looks like Joe Hockey, it's actually okay, a really I, difficult I film like to watch. I like the film a little bit more now, yeah. knowing that, yeah. <laughs> but, no, the, the, the guy who owns the park and the... Um, yeah, played by Irving Khan. Yep, and the um, B.D. Wong as the main scientist. They're the guys that kind of oh, mastermind... I think the Khan character was relatively sympathetic, though. I think he was trying... He, he was naive, was his maybe biggest failing... But he's punished for that. Without oh yeah, he's very much punished. Yeah, it's not a sophisticated film. It has pretensions <laughs> to it at the outset, where it looks like uh, it's going to satirise the uh, predecessors in the series, and it, it has a few little gags. They're not especially funny or witty, but they're there. But it sort of just drops that pretty hastily, and it's a it's odd. I, I mean, it just really shows. Uh, the signs of having been uh, a film that many people had had their hands in the scripting of because it just constantly brings things up and abandons them. So mum and dad, are they getting a divorce? Uh, who cares? Uh, the film doesn't care, but it raises it about a couple of times. Uh, this whole idea that this theme park might actually be struggling, there's nothing visually to suggest that it is. It seems to be thriving and everyone there is having a wonderful time. But uh, apparently uh, the, it, there are problems and we have to, therefore, genetically engineer a new monster as an attraction because people clearly aren't getting enough kicks already out of seeing some monsters eat some other monsters and kids also being able to ride on some monsters or go in a nice little orb and roll amongst the monsters and at first as you say Josh there's a real coherent sense of all these different spaces but as the film progresses it gets less and less coherent how those spaces relate in space with one another and the time like the amount of time it takes to traverse any of them whether you're a child fleeing what is it, Indomitus Rex? Yes. I, I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> or if you're in a Jeep, or if you're in some other sort of vehicle. So that all just breaks down completely. And uh, it's uh, by the end of the film, I, I couldn't care less. I just were wanting whatever they introduced to the film to chomp whatever it would be introduced next and just get on with it, because it's uh, ultimately that's really, I think, what anyone's there to see. They're there to munch on popcorn whilst monsters munch on other monsters. I think, yeah, it loses, it loses its spark for me. I mean, I was on board for probably the first half until the gender stuff got bad, until the narrative seemed to have no sense of coherence, and it felt more like a marketing exercise where someone had said, you know what, we need to have raptors, we need to have Indominus Rex. We need, it was like ticking the box of the various kind of, you know, odes to the other films, but at the expense of any sort of coherent narrative, and I thought that you could almost have ditched the military, the, you know, the, mili- the industrial military complex subplot is just kind of so tired. And if you go back and you look at Spielberg's film, it, you know, and it holds up remarkably, having watched it again this week, it's so tight. In fact, I think it's his best blockbuster for probably 20 years of that type the popcorn film that he that he's made he keeps things so neat and tight well he also has the smarts and you don't know why filmmakers haven't followed this of withholding the monster for such a long time i mean you know think, think about the opening scene with when they go on the tour in, in the first jurassic park and the joke is none of these attractions want to come out and they're and this is like the worst tour of all time and it's not until the end we finally get t-rex and the raptors coming out this kind of i was going to say shoots its load far too early <laughs> <laughs> We're back in Cronenberg world now. Yes. Sorry, mug, mug one reference. Uh, and, I, and I just think, yeah, it, it loses it. So by the end, it just feels, I'm sorry. That was a really no, poor great. choice of words. Oh, this is an image of a T-Rex now. It's Dino load. I'm thinking of that, that creature in the first one that sprays it. So oh, yeah. Where are we going? Load onto um, Newman. T-Rex, he's t- toey. I mean, those little, those little hands can't <laughs> help him out. So it doesn't take much. But the end of this film feels like a... Like a, a 
poor carbon copy of the Godzilla film and, the, and it's just yeah. like a bad kaiju sort of film and I, I was a bit like you Cerise I was kind of bored by the end I was like I wanted something more yeah. you had something to begin with and then you've lost the spark Jurassic World let's face it you're going to see it regardless of what we say <laughs> but those are our thoughts uh, we're going to be looking at 54 in a moment here on Plato's Cave you're listening to 3 Triple R. Three Triple R. Fifty-four, and the director's cut, which is what we're about to discuss yes. now. Seventeen years on from when the original version of this film, having been butchered by the Miramax Corporation or the Weinstein's in particular, running the show. Seventeen years later, director writer Mark Christopher's film gets to be seen much as he had intended. Um, it's a rather queer affair, which I believe was the cause of all of the commotion all those years ago. Um, 25 minutes or so of extra footage had been shot way back in the day, and obviously quite a bit must have fallen on the cutting room floor too. Somehow this uh, spelt disaster for Mark Christopher, uh, as well as some of the cast. Uh, Ryan Philippe hasn't really been very prominent ever since. He's the star of the show. He's Shane O'Shea, a New Jersey boy who hangs out with a bunch of... Uh, uh, pretty uh, unpromising, unprepossessing lads who do much the same thing weekend in, weekend out. There's not a lot going on in Joyzy. He catches wind, though, of the idea that there might be something rather more going on in Manhattan, and there's this notorious club, uh, Studio 54, that is making the papers and all of the uh, the glitz and glamour folk uh, that set the Truman Capotes, the Andy Warhols, and the Hollywood stars and Debbie Harrys of this world uh, gathering there of an evening. And he gets it in his head that maybe he could be admitted to that sort of world. He's lucky. He's very, very good looking after he at least gets a haircut because, gee, that had to go. And, uh, however, uh, a little uh, conundrum for him upon uh, being admitted to the club. Can his friends come in with him? No, they are not of the right sort of calibre. It's all a bit sad, but he, he, he quickly gets the picture. This is not something to knock back. And he finds himself um, kind of out of his depth, certainly at first. You know, it's a real fish out of water, almost a bit of a comedy for a while, as he comes to terms with having to wear an extremely short pair of shorts uh, under the advice of the impresario behind Studio 54, Steve Rubel, played by Mike Myers in an absolutely sensational turn, which is uh, just revelatory. It's, it's funny, but it's also so tinged with sadness. There's nothing especially hammy about this performance. Instead, he's a creepy, creepy man uh, with some serious sexual issues of his own, which occasionally come to the fore. As is was always going to happen in a film set in this sort of club where all manner of drugs are moving about the place fairly freely. Some of them Steve Rubell is aware of, some of them he's not. His bar staff are running a little racket or two and the clientele aren't terribly interested about where it comes from. It doesn't matter, they just want to party. And the parties in this film are quite something to behold. Um, this was uh, the, the Real Studio 54 was previously an opera house, a beautiful Art Deco opera house, and all of that is uh, very that sort of aesthetic is very much to the fore here. And there are, it's easy to imagine as we see some of the labyrinthine corridors back of house and downstairs that this may even have been was it shot on the location? I would like to think it was, but it seems very authentic. I, I believe it was in Canada. Was it in Canada? Yeah. Mm. Well, it has that authenticity though. It does. Uh, Toronto, and then the reshoots were done back in New York. Uh huh. Yeah. Because all of 
the props, uh, all of the um, items of uh, extravagance and gl- uh, uh, gorgeousness that come up with the various performers, it's fantastic. And as queer as all get out. And it's just uh, uh, quite a ride, this film. But we know it's going to be tinged with pathos, and we know that not everyone might come out um, the better for their experience in Studio 54, not least Shane, because the... The further he gets immersed in this world, the more he starts to lose himself, even though he finds a new family there. And at the end, that's what this film is about. It's about family, whether it's your own, which you might abandon, let's say back in Joycey, because they don't quite understand you, even though you might have a little sister who's kind of obsessed with what your what big brother is up to. But then it's about the family you, you forge as you are entering your 20s, you're coming out of your formative years, and... In this case, uh, a rather lovely couple played by Breckenmeyer and Salma Hayek as perhaps the only two people who have their heads screwed on in the entire Studio 54 club, and yet even they are rather troubled. And love triangles emerge, and decadence and hedonism, and a lot of great disco tunage. I remember seeing this film at the time and thinking absolutely nothing of it, which is, I think is the response a lot of people a lot of people had. And I, I didn't know it had this history of having a huge amount ripped out of the film and then a huge amount forcibly put back into it. And I, I only caught up with this last night, and it was such a joy. I loved it. I also think at the time I was really sick of 70s nostalgia. It was really big in the 90s, you know, with, with Boogie Nights, uh, Velvet Goldmine. What's the other one, Alex? The Last Days last of Disco. Days Disco. By the time 54 rolled around, I was like, oh, whatever. And it was such an underwhelming film, the cut they released at the time, that it, it vanished without a trace and no one cared. I'm really glad that someone has cared and brought this film back. I loved it. This is really the kind of film I love where it's very much set in a particular location, particular scene and you see the highs and then the lows. I mean it's sort of Goodfellas as a disco if you like I, I really, I love the characters I love getting to know them and seeing that kind of sad eventual downfall and also enjoying all the highs and, and these actors I did not care for at the time but it's glorious watching them now. Ryan Philippe nails that Jersey accent, that kind of awkward that awkward boy way out, way out of his depth who then becomes so morally compromised and that struggle he has. Salma Hayek is great. And Neve Campbell, who's actually got a, quite a small role in this version of the film, and it, it really works having her as, as this kind of unobtainable kind of ephemeral figure. And, yeah, Mike Myers is astonishing in, in, in this version of the film. Really, really enjoyed it. I um I think that's actually one of the points that you've raised there is one of the more interesting things about this film. I'm a huge fan. I, I talked about this on The Breakfasters last week, so I don't want to fall into that loop where it's just constant praise. Watching the director's cut in 2015, this film for me functions as much as an artefact of the late 90s as it does of the, 19, of the late 1970s. Mm. It's amazing seeing people like Ryan Philippe, Neve Campbell, all of these names that we associate with that late 90s zeitgeist. It feels, as, it feels like a 90s um, love letter now as much as it does a 70s love letter. It's got this double joy to it. And I think Mike Myers, I know that we've all been heaping the love on Mike Myers. I remember when seeing this film when it came out, the theatrical cut, and I disliked it then as much as I like the director's mm-hmm. cut now. It's like the exact opposite reaction. That These films are so different. The, the original version was just massacred. And it's just a joy to see. Uh, watching them back to back is just a fascinating thing to do, a heartbreaking thing to do, but knowing that this film got saved. But Mike Myers is, I, I mean, there's a lot of things to love in this film, but I think Mike Myers' performance is, um, it's, uh, there must be a parallel universe where this film came out as the director intended and Mike Myers 
didn't do the love guru, you know, that he went on to do these interesting, darker, more serious roles. I, I feel like I almost owe him an apology for writing him off. I mean, we all wrote Mike Myers off. And, yeah, there was a world where, where we, would, we would have known him in 54 for for a very different role than the one that we saw. Yeah, we both watched this back to back, the the director's cut and the theatrical. And look, my memory was so hazy of the theatrical cut. I think at the time, I my my recollection was there were some moments of seriousness, and there was just a, a sense of incoherence. Like the film tonally was out of whack, but I had no idea of the backstory. And watching it again, it is a painful experience because you're seeing someone's art completely and utterly sabotaged in ways where I can't think of another film that it's had the, the luck, I guess, of a director's cut released that has been so butchered in its theatrical release form. I mean, the, basically the, the key differences revolve around the, all references to homosexuality, not all references, but references to homosexuality, particularly in relation to the Ryan Philippe character, have been removed. I mean, it's, it's sanitised, it's de-queered, the, love, the central love triangle is removed, they introduce this kind of subplot about the feds and the, and the film becomes less about the Philippe character, the kind of young man entering a world of hedonism, and more about the rebels, kind of like the, the rise and fall of, of Studio 54 and the dream that was that never quite made it and, and the 70s into the 80s, and it just comes unstuck in such a massive way and the use of the voiceover, I mean this is a masterclass, go and see the film go and see, rewatch the theatrical and just see how bad voiceover affects a film, I mean it's, it's astonishing just how cringeworthy the voiceover in the theatrical cut is, and how how wonderful it is when it's being used in the director's cut because Mark uh, Christopher went and got Ryan Felipe to re-record some elements of the voiceover for the introduction, but now he's a 40-year-old man and the tone of his voice is completely different, so it sounds like an older man reflecting on his youth, which is exactly what the, the film is about. And the other thing I wanted to mention really quickly from a stylistic point of view, which is interesting for the director's cut, is a lot of the footage that's been restored is degraded. It has almost a VHS quality feel, which is such a thing that I associate with queer aesthetic. I mean, it's something that Todd Haynes has used in things like Velvet Goldmine, Dottie Gets Spanked, um, you know, the, the, the toying with stylistic uh, elements, which which reinforces the difference from that original cut in highlighting those moments, particularly the, the homosexuality and the bisexuality, I think lends this film such an astonishing kind of, you know, level of interest to it. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about the voiceover. I didn't see the original, and now I'm thinking about it. I, I, I haven't actually pictured Ryan Philippe as a, a 40-year-old man, but hearing that voice, it does have that wonder years quality as he uh, reflects back to I suppose it would have been a time in his life uh, half a lifetime ago and it has that, that, that lovely lovely nostalgic quality and uh, Bia's mentioning that there are just a wonderful array of cameos in here too and I mean Michael York, he himself signifies a certain queerness he's so iconic for... Peter Bogdanovich uh, Peter Bogdanovich is in there um, Ron Jeremy. Uh, yes, Ron Jeremy <laughs> is in and apparently Mark Ruffalo is in the cast somewhere. So I saw he's, he's, he's one of he's the, the best friend from Jersey. Is he? Yeah, he's, yeah. Oh, really? I had a little meltdown when I was told that that was Mark Ruffalo. And the other friend, um, I don't know his name, but he's one of the principal actors in The Wire. He plays one of the cops no in The way. Wire. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think. Yeah. I think. I think so. But yeah. Uh, interesting. And, and the, the, the little sister is played by the Heather, girl who Heather was, was, who I what love. was a Todd Solon's film. Oh, that Welcome very cruel film. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. She's yeah. also in Hostel too, but that's a quiet one for me. <laughs> okay. 54, the director's cut. I think we're unanimous saying that this is really worth the effort to go and, to go and see and just Absolutely. to see how different, as, how different such a radical edit can do to a film. You've been listening to Plato's Gave with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas. I'm Thomas Cordwell. Uh, Strangerland is on limited 
release, very limited release, through transmission films. Jurassic World is on gigantic release uh, through Universal Pictures Australia. And 54, the director's cut is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Park Circus. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the new Pixar film and the Scientology documentary that's pissed off Scientologists. Good night. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.